Hi, my name is Dan Hogue, and I love music. I love listening to it, talking about it, reading up on it, and making weekly top 10 charts with songs I like at the moment. I can only come to one conclusion. Music is my radar. Hey everyone, welcome back to Music Is My Radar, a podcast for music lovers near and far. Well, the day I'm recording this, October 12th, 2020, it sure feels appropriate to be talking about the fourth quarter of 2004, as both then and now, we're in the middle of some highly contested elections. The 04 election was the first one that I was able to vote for, as I turned 18 in between 2000 and 2004. And did I really think that it was a bitter, hotly divided country back then? Oh boy. If 2020 me could go back to 2004 me and give some advice, I'd say, this is downright quaint, buddy, because it's only going to get much, much, much worse. But anyway, since you forgot Poland, (laughs) heh 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 heh. I'll gladly get off my political soapbox and get on my music soapbox. <clears throat> Insert moving of soapboxes. We're going to be starting off with four one-week number ones in the month of October. Here's the first one on the week ending October 9th, 2004. It's Bob Dylan and Dear Landlord. I haven't talked about Bob Dylan in a while, now have I? Dear Landlord comes from his 1967 album, John Wesley Harding, the first album of his that he recorded after that motorcycle crash in 1966. As such, Bob Dylan was completely disconnected from the psychedelic summer of love scene in 1967, and this album was seen as sort of a return to form, with mostly acoustic instruments, and somewhat more straightforward lyrics about characters. The primary instrument on Dear Landlord is the piano, played by Bob Dylan himself. And I think the piano only adds to the soulful sound that Bob Dylan has on Dear Landlord. He sounds very pleading here, as he takes on the character of a poor guy who can't make his rent, but asks his landlord to please consider what he's been through, maybe grant him some leniency. There are two sets of lyrics that have always stuck out to me from this song. The first taking place at the end of the first verse, 
I do hope you receive it well, his best, depending on the way you feel that you live. Just the way it shifts into D in a very unexpected way, and him acknowledging that the landlord has it tough too. The other set of lyrics are in the next verse. I know that you have suffered much, but in this you are not so unique. Where once again, Bob Dylan says, Hey, put me in your shoes, cause I'm putting you in my shoes. And also, the semester before, I'd taken a survey of American literature class in college. The professor used that quote for some reason. I forget the context, but it definitely stuck with me, and probably helped the song get number one as well. Side note, that professor was Norm Weinstein, who went to Bard College around the same time as the two guys from Steely Dan and Chevy Chase. So apparently he knew them. What a lucky guy. Anywho, I'm not sure what kind of stature Dear Landlord has for John Wesley Harding. I do know that the most famous song on the album was All Along the Watchtower, the original one year before Jimi Hendrix covered it. And I am quite surprised that the band never covered this song. I could so hear them tackling this, be a perfect vocal showcase for Richard Manuel, and of course they'd add more to the arrangement, more harmonies, probably more keyboards or accordions or whatever Garth Hudson would play. There is a cover version out there by last episode's participant Joe Cocker. I have yet to hear it, but I'm sure it works in its own way. But moving on. The second of the four-week number ones might actually be my favorite song of the bunch this episode. We got Plastic Bertrand with Sa Plan Pour Moi. Moi, 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 moi. No, just one moi. J'ai sur mon lit à bouffer sa langue en buvant Prends mon whisky quant à moi Peu dormi, vie, débris Mais j'ai dû dormir dans la gouttière Où j'ai eu un flash Ouh En quatre couleurs Allez hop, un matin Une louloute est venue chez moi Poupée de cellophane, cheveux chinois Un sparadra, une gueule de bois A bu ma bière dans un grand verre En caoutchouc I love this song, man. It just makes me want to jump up and dance and do that pogoing thing that the kids did back in the 70s. Plastic Bertrand was the pseudonym of Belgian producer slash musician Roger Francois Jouret, or however you pronounce that name. Although, truth be told, that's not him singing the song. It was the song's writer and producer, Lou de Prick, another guy from Belgium. Although I believe during promotional videos for the song, like on Top of the Pops, it was Plastic Bertrand who mined with the song. And that's not even the last confusing tidbit about this song. So the backing track was used on a completely different song that was recorded a couple months before the vocals for Sa Plan Pour Moi were put down. This song was by a British new wave punk band, Elton Motello, called Jet Boy, Jet Girl. And here's a sample of that. Ooh, 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 ooh. He gives me head, head, head. Jet Boy, Jet Girl. Gonna take you around the world. Jet Boy, I'm gonna make a pen. I'm gonna make you be a girl. 
As you can tell, it was very risque for the Times 1977, where a 15-year-old boy admits his sexual feelings for an older guy. Obviously, it wasn't going to be a big hit, although it was a minor one in Australia. Ça plan pour moi, though? A complete goof. The song's title can be loosely translated to Everything's going well for me. It's got nonsensical French words and the occasional English nonsense, too, like You are the king of the divan. I am the king of the divan. Some have said a more accurate term for this would be new wave or parody punk, and I could definitely see this as a parody. It's got the standard A-D-E chord progression, and those wonderful Beach Boys type backing vocals every line, ooh-wee-ooh. I tried doing it in falsetto, but that wasn't going to happen. I remember coming across some interview with Andy Partridge of XTC. He's one of several celebrities who raved about this song, along with Joe Strummer. And Partridge claimed what made the song for him were those ooey-ee-oo backing vocals. He wanted to be that guy who sang the vocals. Don't we all, man? It's a glorious, glorious bit of nonsense that charted quite well internationally, even though here it only made number 47. Although, for a Belgian act, that's still a pretty damn good showing on Billboard charts. And it's lived on through usage in many movies and TV shows. Movies like National Lampoon's European Vacation, Euro Trip. I assume used in a sense of, hey, we're in France now, even though the song itself is not by a French artist. Now, being the big Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson fan that I am, my favorite use of the song was when Craig and a lot of his puppets or staffers lip-synced the song to commemorate the week that he recorded shows all in France. Again, yes, I know, inaccurate, Belgian artist. Do I sound like I give a damn? No. I love this song to death, so much so that it spent four weeks in the top two throughout the whole month of October. It spent a week at number two the previous week, number one this week, and number two for two weeks after that. In all cases, it was number two behind another song. Yeah, give me this song all day and all night. Give it to moi, 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 moi. Taking over at number one after a week, on the week ending October 23rd, here are those old men, the Moody Blues, with a track from their first album, Peak Hour. in my 30-day song challenge episode about the Moody Blues, I talked about Days of Future Past, but it's worth going more in-depth about that album and how it came to be. So the Moody Blues started off in Britain as one of those R&B groups like the Animals or the Kinks or the Zombies, although in this case they were strictly R&B. They had a big hit with Go Now, number one in the UK and top ten here in America in 1965, but they could not get any momentum after that. Singles flopped, and two years later they had completely changed their sound, and almost half of their band was completely different. No longer was Denny Lane leading the group, now it was Justin Hayward. 
and they wanted to make themselves a concept album. In this case, it would be Days of Future Past, widely known as one of the first concept albums in rock music, in which the concept are the times of the day, and each song on the album explicitly mentions that. You got Dawn as a Feeling, Another Morning, Tuesday Afternoon, Nights in White Satin, etc., etc. This introduced the layout of all the Moody Blues albums from the core seven. They'd have some sort of concept. Each member of the group would contribute at least one song, except for the drummer who would add all that crazy poetry to the beginning or the end or both of the album. All awash in their rich harmonies. In some ways, Days of Future Past does differ from the rest of their albums. First off, as I already mentioned, each song title explicitly supports the concept. And this was the only album to use an orchestra, which provided mostly unnecessary links between each song. They also played the intro and a little bit of the outro. I didn't include that on the sample of this song because it has absolutely nothing to do with Peak Hour, which is in the middle of the album, so I'm guessing Peak Hour is like noon or lunchtime. Peak Hour was written by the resident rocker John Lodge, who also did I'm Just a Singer in a Rock and Roll Band. But to me, this song almost sounds unmoody like. For one thing, the opening chorus licks sound kind of like I can't explain chord progression in a different order. And much as I try not to overuse that term Beatlesque, the song is very much so. I can definitely hear John Lennon in I've seen it all through my window, it seems. Not a whole lot of their trademark harmonies until the acapella section in the middle. But the verses have John Lodge singing by himself. And really, it almost sounds Britpop. I can definitely hear the Holly singing this song with Alan Clark on lead vocals and Graham Nash on the falsetto peak hour parts. At this point, I was already quite familiar with Tuesday Afternoon and Nights in White Satin, so those two would not have shown up on this chart, as I reserved it for new discoveries, mostly. I do consider Days of Future Past to be my second favorite Moody Blues album, and I have to admit my favorite songs are the two biggies, but if you want to get my pick for Dark Horse underrated song on the album, I would go with Peak Hour. And Days of Future Past would be my pick for first Moody Blues album you listen to, or probably more likely only Moody Blues album you need to hear. I'll make the case for my favorite album later on, but that one's a little tougher nut to crack. But anyway, con the analysis, it's ass whipping time. I want fatty! <laughs> Simpsons reference, where the Moody Blues had a very quick cameo in a Las Vegas casino. Good times. The final number one of October 2004. Another one weaker. It's George Harrison with Blood from a Clone. This song is next up on the George Harrison reissued CD series, but turns out to be the last George Harrison number one song to date. This song comes from his 1981 release Somewhere in England, and while the last two albums before this, 33 and a third from 76 and the self-titled from 79, show George Harrison in a great upbeat mood, this album was kind of a troubled making. 
Recording took place off and on throughout 1980. It was marred by three things. The first is speculatory, but I'm thinking this is where George Harrison's loss of interest in music would start, going on to the next album, Gone Tropo. Secondly, this was the year, obviously, that John Lennon was shot in New York City, and it obviously ended sessions for a few months, although it did result in the commercially successful single, All Those Years Ago, written as a tribute to John Lennon. And thirdly, a few months before the John Lennon incident, Warner Brothers, the distributor of George Harrison's label Dark Horse, rejected George's first cut of Somewhere in England. They thought it was too mellow, too laid back, and it needed some snappiness, a hit single. And it's true that a good chunk of Somewhere in England, as well as a few songs that he cut from the album at Warner Brothers' request, are a bit laid back, but that was nothing new for George Harrison. But some of those upbeat songs that he replaced them with weren't that great. One of them was Teardrops, probably my least favorite George Harrison solo song ever. Sounds more like Christopher Cross to me. And Blood from a Clone that I put at number one, despite knowing that it's not a very good song. This song was a direct rebuttal of Warner Brothers. No subtlety at all. Talks about them soulless record companies. All they want is hit singles, man. In the first verse, he says, they want some umpapa, nothing like Frank Zappa? No idea where that comes from. I don't know where Frank Zappa was in his career. Was he a known commercial entity? Was he too laid back at this point? Who knows? And not New Wave, they don't play that crap. That must explain why the song sounds totally like early 80s M.O.R. I'm thinking I put this at number one because I couldn't get enough of that stupid keyboard riff in that dumb tone. Back in 2000, I talked about the song from Gontrapo, Wake Up My Love, which isn't very different from Blood from a Clone, but while Blood from the Clone is sort of tentative in his dorkiness, Wake Up My Love at least makes no apologies. Gets that dumb keyboard riff right out in the open. If you're gonna go dork, go all the way, man. Not one of the better songs I've put at number one, but that's how it goes. Now we're heading into November, and we got our first two-week number one song of the episode. On the week ending November 6, 2004, the week of the re-election of W, it's the George Baker selection with Little Green Bag. If this was a YouTube video, I'd say something like, Reservoir Dogs brought me here. Or actually, more appropriate for me, I Love the 90s brought me here. That's right, we got yet another number one inspired by those VH1 I Love the show. 
This was the year that I Love the 90s came out, and in their 1992 episode, they talked about that cult classic Reservoir Dogs and the use of this song, Little Green Bag, as the opening sequence that shows the eight main characters walking down the road in slow motion. The characters Mr. Pink, Mr. Purple, whatever, which led to Michaeleen Black on that episode saying, the movie should have been called Wonderful Colors. Long way of saying, no, I've never seen the movie. I keep telling you, I don't watch movies. It introduced us to Quentin Tarantino's trick of unearthing 70s songs that people forgot and putting them in his films, giving those songs a new lease on life. Of course, the most famous example in Reservoir Dogs was Stuck in the Middle with You, accompanying the ear-cutting scene. This song didn't seem to get the same revival as I'd never heard it until seeing I Love the 90s. But then again, it wasn't as big of a hit. It did make number 16 in 1970 in America, but I don't think it was a radio mainstay. But instead of that thread, I'll talk about another mini-mini phenomenon in 1970, the Dutch Invasion. This was a period where several Dutch artists had success in America and not much elsewhere, George Baker's selection being one of them. Also, he got the tea set with their terrible song, Ma Bella Me, and Shocking Blue with their number one hit, the much, much better Venus. A couple years later, it was rounded out by Mouth and McNeil with their bizarre song, How Do You Do. Yeah, check that one out. It's crazy. What all these have in common is a couple of lyrics that are a little bit English is not their first language type. In this song, Little Green Bag, the big one is the chorus, looking for some happiness, but there is so a loneliness to find, which, after Bush was re-elected when this was number one, we were looking for a happiness, weren't we? And another random song fact, the original title of the song, and the one that's actually sung, is Little Green Back, as in looking for money, but his pronunciation wasn't exact, so as a result, or maybe not as a result, First pressings used an incorrect title of Little Green Bag, which was never corrected. And people took it up to mean Little Green Bag of Marijuana, because, you know, 70s. I haven't said much about the song itself, but it's a catchy little shuffle. Oh, so 70s. And one of those quote-unquote lost songs of the decade. I await its re-re-emergence in Guardians of the Galaxy 4. <laughs> After two weeks at number one, George Baker's selection was dethroned by a return of your old pal Elton. The week ending November 20th, 2004, one week at number one, it's Elton John's Gray Seal. greatest hits compilations, I finally get to hear an Elton John album proper. In this case, it's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. As was common at the time, I already knew a lot of the big songs from the album, Benny and the Jets, Candle in the Wind, 
funeral for a friend. Saturday night's all right for fighting. So I reserved the number one song for a hidden gem that I didn't know until I heard the album. As for Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, it has a bit of an infamous reputation. It was Elton John's double album, and it had the high highlights, but also quite a bit of duffer. Obnoxious stuff like Jamaica Jerk Off or Dirty Little Girl, or boring stuff like Ballad of Danny Bailey or Roy Rogers. Not this song, though. It's a blast. I'd say it should have been a hit single, but then again, this album already had three big hit singles, so were it on another one of his albums, I would definitely see it being released as a single. Interesting fact, while the song came out in 1973, its origins were three years earlier, as he recorded for his 1970 self-titled album, his first major work. But the song was left off the album, and I don't think it even got a B-side release, but it was included as a bonus track on reissues of that album. And everything was pretty much the same in the original. Same structure, same lyrics, just a lot less showy, a little more humble. I do know there's a fair share of people who prefer that version for that reason alone, but in its 70s overproduction here, it's downright wonderful. Those piano fills at the start of the song and throughout the chorus kind of predict his cover of Pinball Wizard a couple years later, and it just bursts with energy. But what's the song about? I have no idea, and Bernie Taupin himself doesn't seem to know either. Elton himself called the song Procol Haramish Absurd, like a Salvador Dali painting, and that's probably what I'll go with. Just an assortment of images and imagery set to that melody. I'm pretty sure Bernie writes the lyrics first, then Elton writes the music to go with it. Regardless, it's a very fun song. It makes me feel good whenever I hear it. On an inconsistent album where a lot of the lesser-known tracks are lesser-known for a reason, this is a very good underrated standout, in my opinion. It doesn't look like a song he plays live all that often, although I did come across a YouTube of him performing in 2012. Let's just say if he played the song when I saw him in 2011, I'd definitely go a little nuts. Next up is another two-week number one. Last week of November, going into December, we're going back to the mid to late 90s and that swing revival. Here are the Squirrel Nut Zippers with Hell. a youngin, we had a thing called swing music, by which I mean the swing revival. From what I've read, this group kind of initiated the trend, at least in the pop culture, as this song, Hell, was the first of those songs to make the charts, in this case just the modern rock charts, in mid-1997. I personally had always seen the swing revival as a 1998 thing, not a year sooner, not a year later, but I guess I'm wrong. I was way out of the loop in the rock scene in 1997 and 98, 
You'd have to ask my brother Jonathan, class of 98. He was on board for the whole ska revival around the same time. And I'll have to ask him, but I believe the swing revival was during his high school. Either that or when he was in college the following fall of 1998. I was familiar enough with the big two of the swing scene, though, at the time. The Cherry Pop and Daddy's Zoot Suit Riot and Brian Setzer's orchestra cover of Jump, Jive, and Whale. Meanwhile, I might have heard of the Squirrel Nut Zippers, but once again it took until I Love the 90s for me to actually hear hell. Egads, at this point I might as well have been a guest panelist on Best Week Ever. Could have been best friends with Paul Shear. But yes, they had a segment in the 1998 episode on the Swing Revival, talking about important parts of the movement, the first being the 1996 Vince Vaughn movie Swingers, and going on to talk about Squirrel Nut Zippers, where this song was played. Now, unlike those other two pillars that I mentioned, Hell doesn't sound like a big old swing stereotype, where you all get up and jitterbug with your partner. I actually done swing dancing before, it's pretty fun. But Hell is a little more darker, more like maybe jazz or something, slash swing. Although, it being the 90s, there's definitely a sense of tongue-in-cheek, postmodern irony within. A little too goofy to be menacing, even though it describes hell in the terms of teeth are extruded and bones are ground and made into cakes that are passed around in hell, of course. I don't have the album that this came from hot, but I did read an all-music review saying that the band might not be for purists because of that postmodern irony and because of what they called collegiate humor. Not being a huge aficionado of swing jazz, I'm not one to opine about that. I just find it a fun little track. Another artifact of the anything goes zeitgeist of the mid to late 90s. So many different styles, so many what-the-heck one-hit wonders, and a happy, optimistic feeling in the country. Boys and girls, you don't know what you got until you lose it. (sighs) On the weekending December 11th, for one week at number one, It's the second appearance of this episode by the Moody Blues. Here is Never Comes the Day. back on the Moody Blues discography train. In November, I listened to their album, In Search of the Lost Chord, the one after Days of Future Past in 1968. The concept was kind of a psychedelic one, trying to find this chord throughout time and history, with a bunch of Summer of Love stuff shoved in. The song that charted the highest was Legend of a Mind, but that was stuck at number two behind the George Baker selection. I like that album a little bit more than most people, but it's still a little bit of acquired taste. This song, Never Comes a Day, comes from their third album in 1969. It's probably my second least favorite of their core seven. I think the concept this time was a trip through your subconscious, because we got that big instrumental, the dream, blah blah blah. Never Comes the Day is another Justin Hayward song. 
And I gotta say, his vocals kinda save the song for me. As I'm sure you can tell from that sample, it meanders a little bit during the verses and kind of makes me want to do that hand signal like, come on, get on with it. But it eventually does, in time for me to fade out the sample, of course. The chorus is just a simple moody blues type one, give just a little bit more, all in a heavily harmonized manner. But even then, that part kind of screws up in the production a little bit. There's a harmonica part you can't really hear all that well during that sequence. If you listen close enough, you can hear something going fur, 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 fur. But for some reason, they just drowned it out. They had a live album the same year, 1969, called Caught Live, where they do this song, and apparently the harmonica sounds a lot better there. I haven't heard it myself. It seems to have gone out of print a long time ago. I'm just going off what my web reviewing friends have said about that song on the album. So yeah, as you can tell, I don't have a lot to say about this particular song. I don't think I could have chosen a better one from On the Threshold of a Dream for number one, though. It's a bit of a dark horse of a song. Although, as I said, it's got some classic Justin Hayward turns of phrase and vocals, so that saves the song for me quite a bit. Their next album, To Our Children's Children's Children, released the same year, 1969, is quite a bit better, and my favorite of the Core 7, but I will talk about that one next week as one of the songs hit number one in quarter one of 2005. Don't worry, next week will come the day. Wah, wah, wah. For the weeks ending December 18th and December 25th, the number one song was a Christmas song, a reappearance by Elton John with Step Into Christmas. This I won't play a sample of because I envision an episode in the future where I talk about Christmas number ones and just Christmas songs that have done well on my charts. So no sample here, let's move on. The final number one of 2004 Although technically the week ending January 1st, 2005, I go up north to Canada. It's Bob and Doug McKenzie of SETV fame featuring a certain Getty Lee with... Yeah. Yeah, he's good. Okay, so good day. Our topic today is music. That's right, like, because my brother and I are now experts in the field, Yeah, eh? right, because we're a band now. And, uh, yeah. yeah, Well, so. except for him, I'm a band. Oh, how can you do that? You're making me look bad. You're such a hose hand. Yeah, well, take off! Yeah, yeah, you get the joke, right? So, back in the early 1980s, there was a show on NBC called SCTV. This was a show put on by veteran members of Second City from the Toronto Satellite. The show had been on Canada since 1976, but in 1981, NBC picked it up to replace the cancelled Midnight Special. A very lazy description of the show would be Canadian Saturday Night Live. But really, the concept was a typical day on a fictional Canadian network with shows and commercials and bumpers and, of course, sketches. The most famous sketch and the most enduring in America was Bob and Doug McKenzie, hosts of the show Great White North. As is the case with a lot of things that break out and become popular, the McKenzie brothers were conceived by actors Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas as just throwaway filler because the CBC had insisted that the show create two minutes of Canadian content not dissimilar to the standards they have on Canadian radio, and both actors felt that this was dumb, 
This was a Canadian show produced by Canadian actors. So why do they need Canadian content, they thought. Thus, the McKenzie brothers were created as sort of a fuck you to CBC. It fulfilled the Canadian content, but it also included over-the-top Canadian stereotypes and caricatures, like back bacon, hockey, all the slang like A, take off ya hoser. Well, in America, they, uh, took off. They became the runaway stars of SCTV, and with that comes merchandising. They starred in a movie called Strange Brew, which I've never seen, and they created an album called Great White North, from which this song was taken. I would not dive into SUTV until a couple years down the line, so I believe I got this album from my oldest brother. I could be wrong. It's mostly drunken, improvised skits, as on the show, with two notable exceptions. Their rendition of 12 Days of Christmas, and this song, which they said was their hit single off the album. And turns out it was, reaching number 16 in the U.S. in March of 1982. Really not much to say about this song. It's a novelty, and I try to avoid putting novelties at number one, but this time I couldn't resist. As I mentioned in the last episode, this was the year that I finally got assimilated to Getty Lee's voice. So that helped in that bizarre Clash song, Lose the Skin, with the guy who sounds like him and his appearance in this song, that he's not the reason that Rush were so stuffy and humorless. Nah, that was a late Neil Peart. In real life, Getty Lee's supposedly a really good guy. Their pre- and post-song banter is pretty funny, with Getty Lee really leaning in on the A's and whatnot. But other than that, it's a minor number one, and kind of a weird way to end an episode. Oh well. So now on to honorable mentions. Quite a few ones from this quarter. We got Peter Gabriel, number three, with Games Without Frontiers for one week in October, while Never Comes the Day was number one in December. On the same week, They Might Be Giants had their second major hit on my charts, number five with Anna Nig, and it would probably sound like the ultimate snub, the Depeche Mode song's Policy of Truth, backed with Enjoy the Silence, a song that definitely got to me in the summer of 1990 when I was six. Was it number two behind Take Off? Hmm. But I will leave you fair listeners with a sample of a song that was number three when Grey Seal was at number one. YouTube was a year away from existence, but I came across a video by pop singer from India, Dollar Mendy, a song called Tunak Tunak Tun, which to this day is still one of my favorite things I've ever seen on the internet. Damn catchy song too, it works without the video, but still. Check that shiz out. Viral before viral was a thing. Homework aside, thanks as always for listening to Music Is My Radar. Join me next week as I tumble headfirst into 